Podcastle episode 149 for March 22nd, 2011. Honing Sebastian by Elizabeth Ingstrom. Rated R for language and adult themes. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is Honing Sebastian by Elizabeth Engstrom. The story originally appeared in the Outsiders Anthology, published by Rock in 2005 and edited by Nancy Kilpatrick and Nancy Holder. Now, you remember when you were in high school and you were really, really late writing a term paper and the only way you could get it finished in time was to resort to the old trick of pulling Bartlett's quotations off your shelf and cramming it full of quotes that kind of had some marginal connection to the topic at hand and hoping that your English teacher, Mrs. Wright, wouldn't notice? I encourage you to keep those painful memories fresh in your mind as I share with you a handful of quotes I've found that I think are exceedingly pertinent to today's story. With lies, you may go ahead in the world, but you can never go back. This one isn't so much a quote as it is an old Russian proverb, uh, but it proves that Russians have the best proverbs in the world, and it ties into our next quote, Convictions are more dangerous enemies of truth than lies, which was said by Friedrich Nietzsche, 19th century German philosopher and author of The Gay Science, which, by the way, is way less fun to read than its title would suggest. H.L. Mencken, who was a fan of Nietzsche, as it happens, said, The truth that survives is simply the lie that is pleasantest to believe. Mencken was known in his time as the Sage of Baltimore, and in 1931, the Arkansas legislature passed a motion to pray for his soul after he called their state the apex of Moronia. Finally, there's my favorite quote, which has nothing and everything to do with truth and lies. It is from Oliver Cromwell, who famously wrote to the Synod of the Church of Scotland in 1650, saying, I beseech you, in the bowels of Christ, think it possible that you may be mistaken. Elizabeth Engstrom is best known as a speculative fiction writer. Her work has been published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Horror Show, American Fantasy Magazine, and Cemetery Dance. The story is read by Kane Lynch who is a cartoonist and filmmaker who lives in Berkeley. He invites listeners to check out his magic realist webcomic, The Relics, which is at www.canelynch.com slash The Relics. Enjoy the story. Honing Sebastian by Elizabeth Engstrom, read by Kane Lynch. Sebastian found the paper sack at 0217 hours on Monday, the 16th of aught, the day of our Lord Hammersmith 12. He saw it in the corner of the doorway of an old apothecary and made note of all the details in his journal before he approached it. He expected it to be empty, something blown there from the other world, but when he touched it, he could tell it had weight. He made note of that in his journal, along with the words that were printed in green on its side. The words made no sense to him, but he copied them as exactly as he was able. Then he looked inside the sack, and terror seized him. He cringed, hunkered down over the sack, expecting to hear sirens. He expected the great hands to grab him, rough fingers bruising him, lifting his bony body off its feet and carried by burly, faceless, hairy creatures in blue to throw him into a caddy and land him on concrete with four walls. But no sirens. No caddy, no blues. He gave a furtive look both ways down both sides of the street, then tucked the bag inside his trowel. 
Then he made a note of it, but he didn't note what he saw inside it, and all the way home, the pencil stub in his journal glowed white-hot in his pocket with the omission. The rents would want to know what he didn't note. They could see into his mind. They'd see that he hadn't written everything down as were his orders, and he would be punished. But he didn't think the rent punishment would be worse than the blues, so he took his chances. Now that, too, was a thought he ought to write down, but couldn't. Maybe he needed a different journal, one to write down the things he showed to the rents, and one he kept for himself. But not only was the stub in the notebook glowing like a fuck-me sign in his pocket, so was the bag in his underwear. He could hear it, too, with every step. He crouched lower and told it to hush quietly, but he didn't think it hurt him. It didn't have to. It was too valuable. It could think whatever it wanted, be as loud as it wanted, and nobody would care. It could scream, shriek, be vulgar, and still everybody would want it, especially the rents and the blues. But Sebastian had found it, so it was his. He'd have to keep it secret from the rents. A secret from the rents! But then, he wondered, as he neared the D, what good was it if he couldn't let others know he had it? By itself, it wasn't valuable at all. It was only valuable when others knew he had it. That's what would give him the power. He ought to write that down, not for the rents, for himself, in the alternate notebook. Why had somebody left the bag in the doorway anyway? Maybe it wasn't real. Sebastian scuttled past the D, all the way to the river. The fire wasn't so big today, but still there was enough smelch for him to hide inside it for a few minutes. This was where he came to do his secret things. He had secrets he never told the rents. Maybe that's why this was so easy. Sometimes he came to the river to talk to himself, and sometimes he put his hands in his pants, and sometimes he talked to the rents in a whisper when he was certain nobody else could hear him. He was a sinner. This time, enshrouded in the black acred smoke, Sebastian pulled the bag from his underwear, opened it up, and looked in again. The sight of it scared him, and he had to keep himself from flinging it into the burning river or shoving it back into his trowel. He needed to look at it, to touch it, to handle it, to, to make certain it was what he thought it was. It was. Riches far beyond imagination. Oh, what he could do with this. He ought to make a note, but he didn't. Instead, he talked to himself. He talked to the rents, he put his hands in his pants, and when he went back to the D, he was a sinner for certain. Where you been? Slicer asked as soon as Sebastian ducked inside. You stink. River. Sebastian was certain now that not only did his journal and stub glow, but so did the bag and so did his face. He was going to lie to Slicer, and someday she'd find out and hate him. Why? He pushed her out of his way and walked quickly past the tattooing, then slid down the pipe into the tube, then, not hearing her behind him, began to run along the tracks. He never ran before that he could remember. Nobody ran, especially down here in the dark. But Sebastian ran, and he liked the way it made his lungs and legs hurt. His blanket was in a safe zone. The rents never went this far out, although Slicer and the rest of the hoons did. The young ones were thieving, vandalizing little shits, so Sebastian never left anything down there but his blanket. They didn't want his blanket. They wanted valuable things. Sebastian never had anything of value, just his old journals, and they were only valuable to him because the rents would be mad at him if he didn't produce the current one on demand. And it had better be up to date, up to the minute even. <sighs> Once back at his blanket, Sebastian sat with his back in the corner of his nook, his stomach rumbling. He'd forgotten to find grinds after he'd found out about the sack. Now he had to decide where to hide, hide the sack and its magic from the rents and the hoons. He had no idea how to even begin to go about it. He wrapped up in his blanket, listening to the dark wind blow through the tunnel. The wires vibrated and sang with the songs of long ago, and sometimes Sebastian hummed along, matching their tone. 
But not today. Today, Sebastian needed to search his soul. He had to decide if he was going to defy convention and embrace sin, or if he was going to confess, take his punishment, and slip back into anonymity. He kind of wanted to search his soul, but he already knew what he was going to do. He just had to get his courage up and to figure out how to hide the bag. The papers were real. He'd seen enough of them. Occasionally, Ahun found one, and one of the rent snatched it away. This was a whole bundle of them. Big, fat, heavy bundle. The rents would want it. The other hoons would want it. He wanted it. He wanted to go up with it into the street and become a civilian. He could wear real linen. He could grind real food. He could walk in the sunshine. He'd seen sunshine. He'd seen the civilians wandering around in it as if it were free for the taking. Perhaps it was for them, but it could never be for Sebastian. He wore the black. He had the tattoos. He lived underground. As it has been, so it will be. That's what the rent said, quoting the hammersmith. But now, he had the means to pay his way. Hey! Slicer climbed up onto his ledge, startling him. What you doing? Slicer had a way of sneaking up, her clothes black against the dark, hair black, face smudged, hands and forearms tattooed, rending her almost invisible, which worked to her advantage. The whites of her blue eyes shone in the dimness, and Sebastian could see her hair shining yellow where it had grown in at the part. Yellow, like sunshine. Thinking about sunshine, Sebastian said. We could go tomorrow, Slicer said. Into the sun? I go every day. You lie, he said in disbelief. How? You think I tell the rents everything? Sebastian nodded. The idea of withholding things from the rents was a brand new concept to him but apparently not to everybody. Well, I don't. She picked at a ragged fingernail. W what don't you tell them? That I go up there and walk with the civvies. The, the civvies let you? They don't stop me. W what about the rents? He asked. What about them? Th they'll read your mind. They can't, Slicer said. They, they can. They took Suki and read her mind and then punished her for blasphemous thoughts. She told me. Suki's a dweeb, Slicer said. She should die. Sebastian knew there was more Slicer wasn't telling him. He was amazed that she walked in the sunshine with the civvies. That was blasphemous. Punishable. What, what, what else? Slicer put her hand in her lap and looked at him square in the eye. I found my family again, she said. And sometimes I visit them. Sebastian was astounded at this news. Th then why do you live down here? I don't think they want me, she said, and went back to torturing her fingernail. Do you, do you grind with them? She shook her head. Talk? Again, she shook her head no. D do they see you? No, but then how do you know they're your family? Because I want them to be. Sebastian had such an overwhelming feeling of affection for Slicer that he almost revealed a secret to her. He had a moment of clear fantasy where they went upstairs together, lived like civilians, had a baby, played with it in the sunshine, on grass. The words were on the tip of his tongue. He was about to take her hand and tell her that they could do that. They could make a family just like the one she wanted to be hers, the, the two of them. But then she opened her mouth one more time, and the illusion, the dream, evaporated like a wisp of river fire smelch. Dix and I are running away together, she said. We're going to Hollywood. Sebastian pulled away from her and hugged his blanket. He hoped his hurt and disappointment didn't show. 
When? Now, I come to say goodbye. I'll miss you, he said and meant it. A hot ball of emotion stuck in his throat and he couldn't say anything more. She reached forward and wrapped her arms around his neck. Then up on their knees, she pressed her body next to his. The bag in his crotch crinkled. Sebastian hoped she hadn't heard it. What's that? she asked, pulling back. What? That noise. What's in your trowel? Nothing. Don't lie. Don't tell anybody. As if I would, she said. He trusted her. She went into the sunshine. She and Dix were leaving, breaking all the rules. He trusted her and he loved her. Maybe if she saw the swag, she'd stay with him. They could escape together into the sun. The fantasy was back. He reached into his trowel and brought out the bag. Hammers, she said. Did you note it? Yeah, Sebastian said, but not what was in it. What? He opened the bag and let her look inside. Before he could stop her, she reached inside and pulled out the papers. Hammer, Sebastian, you're rich! Come with me into the sunshine, Slicer? He felt suddenly desperate. He'd shared his secret and now he wanted to share its fruits. Being rich was no good alone. Forget Dix. We'll, We'll be our own family. We'll have a baby. She looked at him with surprise in her eyes. A baby, she whispered. Then with an anger he'd never known from her before, she ripped the bag out of his hands. You stupid, she said, jumped off the ledge and ran off down the tube. Sebastian listened to her footfalls echo as far as the D, and then he couldn't hear them anymore. He was alone, with the black wind that blew down the tunnel and right through his heart. Sebastian stayed curled up with his blanket for longer than he ever had before. His heart was broken. He could feel the sharp edges cutting haphazardly inside his chest. He could hear the pieces rattle around when he got up and went down the tunnel to make. He didn't grind. He didn't talk. He saw no sun. He had no dreams. He just lay with his blanket and let his eyes leak. Now and then one of the hoons, or occasionally a small gang of them, came around and tried to roust him, but Sebastian had nothing to say to them. They could rob him of, of, of what? His pencil? He didn't care. They could beat him, and he didn't care. They could kill him, and that would be good. But, but they didn't. They just poked at him, and when he didn't respond, they wandered off. Sebastian wanted Slicer back. He wanted the papers back. He wanted the power. No. He wanted the dream. There was a dream inside him that shone forth for a quick minute, and then it was gone, and he missed it. But as he lay there, cold against the concrete, he began to think of Hammersmith, and why he would give Sebastian a dream and then deny him. That part didn't make any sense. Perhaps Sebastian had been too long without grinds, but he thought that maybe the rents were wrong. More blasphemous, Sebastian, he told himself, but he didn't care anymore. He didn't care about the rents. He didn't care about himself. He didn't care about anything. Just when he decided that he'd go into the sun and ask a civilian his question about the dream and the rents and the hammersmith, a hoon raced by. Rents! he shouted, and Sebastian's heart began to pound. Rents? This far out? Why? He pulled his legs up underneath him, wrapped his blanket around them, and tried to make himself invisible squelched into the corner of his nook. It wasn't long after the hoon came by that he heard footsteps coming down the tube, and even though it was dark, he could see the rent's face. It was as if he had his own light. He was so clean and white. Sebastian, the rent said with a soft voice, and Sebastian thought he was going to faint at the sound of it. He scrambled for his journal, the most recent one, but he hadn't noted anything in it since the day he found the bag. I, Sebastian said, are you sick? 
N no. We, we heard you were sick. No. Sebastian couldn't stop trembling. Stand up. Sebastian stood, but his trousers had to fall to his ankles, so he gripped them. His knees shook. The rent had a kind face. This was not like any of the rents he'd ever seen before, with their hooked noses, red hair, and hard, evil mouths. When was the last time you ate? Ate? Grinds. Don't know. The rent held out a brown paper sack. Here, he said. Don't tell anybody I gave you this. To tell who? Anybody. Hoons. Rents. Sebastian cowered until the rent placed it on the ground at his feet. Then the rent smiled and turned away. Sebastian could smell grinds in the bag. They made his stomach grumble. They made his mouth water. But this rent, this was not an ordinary rent. This was a civilian. He could ask his question. Dreams. Dreams? He said to the man's back. What about dreams? Dreams, the man said and turned back around. What kind of dreams? Sebastian couldn't answer. His mouth was befuddled with the emotion in his throat. His eyes began to leak, and he hicked and couldn't catch his breath. Dr dreams of sunshine, he finally choked out. Babies on the grass. We are made of dreams, Sebastian, he said. Is that yours? Sebastian began to sob. He stood, holding up his trowel, water running down his face, and nodded. He felt more pitiful than ever. Anything else? Slicer. Slicer? She, she's a hoon. Ah, the man said. Love. Good. He held out his hand, a soft white hand with clean fingernails that seemed to glow of its own accord in the darkness. Well, come on then. Sebastian was confused. A am I dead? He asked. <laughs> the civilian laughed and his white teeth flashed like slicers. Soon enough. Come on. Trust? That's part of your dream, isn't it? the man said. Sebastian put his skinny, dirty, tattooed hand into the man's and jumped down off his ledge, leaving his blanket in his journals. I had power one time, he said. I believe you, son. Sebastian, his heart filled with a hope he'd never known, walked next to the big man down through the tube, but instead of ducking into the D, they kept walking, all the way to the light stairs. Sebastian had never been to the light stairs before. He knew about them, of course, but up those stairs is where the rents lived out their miserable lives and none of the hoons wanted anything to do with them, much less enter their territory on purpose. It wasn't so much that nobody wanted anything to do with them, it was more that everybody was afraid of them. Sebastian was certainly afraid. The rents had mystical powers. The rents could pull information right out of your mind. Sebastian didn't want anything pulled out of his head. Sebastian hung back. Rents, he said, and nodded toward the stairs. It's okay, boy, the man said. You're with me. Remember your dream. Sebastian's heart beat so hard in his chest that he found it difficult to breathe. The man took his hand again and pulled him along, pulled him almost against his will to the stairs and then up them, one at a time. Almost against Sebastian's will, but not quite. Sebastian was afraid, but intrigued. Could the dream be on the other side of the door at the top of the stairs? Could a black-clad, tattooed hoon ever really go into the light? Or was he doomed to live like a rat in the tunnels, foraging for grinds and a pittance to hand over the rents so they went hunt him down and beat him? There were a few old hoons, but not many. There were a lot of old civilians. Sebastian looked up at the man beside him in the faint light cast by the magic stairs, and he saw the civilian's gray hair and lined face. 
This was no hoon. This was a champion. Sebastian pulled his hand back from the man's, took a deep breath, straightened his back, tossed his hair, and took the stairs of his own free will. They'd take him to hell or they'd take him to freedom, and he was soon to find out which. At the top, the man pulled out a key and opened a heavy door. They stepped into a stinky corridor, with light emanating from an indeterminate source. Sebastian could hear someone crying. This way, the man said. And Sebastian, feeling small and weak again, uncomfortably out of his element, followed. They went through a series of light corridors, stairs and doors, and finally opened a glass door and stepped into a bright room with big windows on the street that let in all kinds of light. It hurt Sebastian's eyes. What's this, Leo? An older woman said, peering over half-glasses at Sebastian. Something the street vomited up? She looked like a rent with her gold earlobes. This is Sebastian, the man said. He has a dream. The woman cackled, and Sebastian wanted to shrink, to turn back, to run back to the safety of his blanket. It seemed as though the man was making fun of him. He felt hot nose water run down onto his upper lip and spread out onto his thin mustache. He wiped at it with the back of one hand while the other held onto his trowel. He wanted to guard his head so she couldn't pull information out. He didn't want her to know about Slicer going to Hollywood with dicks and the bag of papers. The man shuttled him through the room full of furniture and papers and into another little room with a soft place to sit. He closed the door behind him and they both sat down. So far so good, Sebastian? The man asked. Sebastian nodded. He wondered if the man was a rent in disguise. I'm going to help you find your dream, Sebastian. Do you believe me? Sebastian nodded. The man hadn't locked the door. If he felt his mind being invaded, he could just run. Do you know what makes people sick, Sebastian? Sebastian shook his head. Doing the wrong thing. Here it was. Sebastian felt the rents creeping inside his skull. Doing things that aren't right. Stealing. Lying. Not carrying your share of the load. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sebastian's muscles tensed. He nodded at the man, trying to understand how he could look so nice yet be an enemy. Is there something you'd like to tell me? Sebastian shook his head. Confession, Sebastian, is what the soul craves. Unburden yourself, because if you're ever going to find your dream... They knew he was hiding. It was too late. If he didn't say something, they were going to suck it out of his head. Slicer stole my swag and went to Hollywood with dicks, he blurted out. The man nodded. We know about them, he said. They're not in Hollywood. They're right here, safe, like you. Sebastian exhaled a sigh of relief. He felt better. The man was right. He felt lighter, unburdened. That was what they wanted from him then. He could go. He stood up, felt like he stood a little taller, even though he'd ratted out his girl. I'm going, he said. Know who the rents are, Sebastian? No, Sebastian did not know who the rents were. He sat back down. This might be valuable information. Tenants. They pay rent on the building we're in. Know who they pay rent to? Sebastian shook his head. He wasn't certain he understood all this. Me. I have an enormous cash-eating machine that requires a lot of income. Wives, airplanes, swimming pools, knew where my income comes from? Sebastian suddenly knew where this was going, and he was afraid. He wanted to throw himself on the floor and kiss the man's shoes. Sebastian knew who he was talking with, but he didn't want to utter the name, the holy name. My income 
comes from the tenants. They get their income from you folks who work the streets for them. Know your place in the hierarchy? There are crows and vultures in the natural world, Sebastian, who clean up the roadkill. Carp keep the streams clean. Worms recycle earth nutrients. You and the hoons pick the streets clean every night. Sometimes things of value are passed to the rents who pass them on to me. So see, your place in the world is part of my dream. I need you, Sebastian, and Slicer, and Dix, and the rest. But I'd like my dream to be your dream, too. Sebastian felt a little calmer. What the man was saying was making a strange sort of sense. He felt like maybe he had a fine place in the world after all. He relaxed. I need you to keep doing what you're doing. You make a tremendous contribution to the rents, to me, to the city, to the other hoons. You provide jobs and income. You and the other, Sebastian, you're the ones who make the whole system work. Do you see what I'm saying? Sebastian nodded. The man put a soft white hand on Sebastian's shoulder. When Slicer and Dix decided to go to Hollywood with a bag full of money, they were disrupting the system. And the system can't be disrupted if it's to work right. We can't have crows killing raccoons now, can we? Sebastian didn't understand that exactly. So, I need you to go back to work, keeping your journal, reporting everything you see and hear for the betterment of society, Sebastian. All of society. We each have our place in it. Now do you know how to make your dream come true? Sebastian shook his head. When you make your reality your dream. Understand? Sebastian sort of did. He nodded. Good boy, the man said. I'm sorry about your friends, but if you walk the straight and narrow just as the rents ask of you, you'll be leading the good life, the life that was laid out for you to live. It's important what you do. Your actions have value to me and to the others, okay? Sebastian nodded. The man stood up and offered Sebastian his hand. Sebastian took it. If you have any more questions, son, come to the light stairs and ask for me. I'm Leo. Leo Hammersmith. Tears choked Sebastian again, and he couldn't speak. He was in the presence. Hammersmith showed him out and gave him vague directions as to how to get back to the light stairs. Sebastian stumbled his way along. When he got to the place in the corridor where he could hear the crying, he recognized the voice. Slicer. But he couldn't help her. He had a job to do. And welcome back. We are made of dreams, so saith the Hammersmith. And the way to make your dream come true is to make your reality your dream. Don't wish for anything better. Don't try and escape. Know your place and like it because you cannot change it. You cannot become more than you are now. There is no escape. Archibald Harry Tuttle and his renegade team of air conditioning specialists are not coming to save you. Wake up and face reality. I say, to hell with the Hammersmith. I say the way to make your dreams come true is to make your own dreams your reality. Do not settle to live anyone else's dreams but your own. That's your ticket into the sunshine. Like Bono said, don't let the bastards grind you down. With that in mind, I'm going to slightly switch gears and give a special welcome back to our old brain-snatching overlord fiend, Pseudopod. Back from the dead. Well, more accurately, mostly dead. Good to hear you all rocking the Anders manga again, broadcasting out that special brew of fear we all love so very much. Welcome back, guys. 
Okay, feedback this week is for another lighthearted story we ran recently, MLN Hanover's Hurt Me, read by Elizabeth Green Musselman. The story of a woman who purchases a house haunted by a vengeful ghost, but we're left wondering, who's haunting who? There was a ton of feedback on this one, and one of the biggest questions was, is murder ever justifiable? Kibitzer said, Wow, like everyone else, the story didn't go where I thought it was going, but where it did go was moving and affecting. I acknowledge the concerns about condoning murder, but that honestly didn't occur to me while I was listening. I was too taken in with the story. Electric Paladin said, It was a mean, bitter, empowering little story. Lots of bite and kick and all sorts of other good things. I have to admit, though, that revenge porn isn't usually my thing. The story's conclusion isn't really a conclusion. It isn't really over, and I wonder how long it will be before Corey gets sick of tormenting her dead husband's ghost and decides that it's time to move on. I wonder how easy it will be for her to do this when the time comes. That said, non-endings don't really bother me. As a rule, I like stories that lead to other stories. Finally, Laws said, I loved it. It took the metaphorical ghost that haunts us and makes them, or one of them, real and shows us how to overcome them. I did feel queasy as the story developed. Too many stories in all media seem to think that all you need to do to have a horror story is a woman plus torture. But this story really wrong-footed me in a way that I ultimately enjoyed. This guy seemed like such a creep that even death doesn't stop him trying to abuse women, and doing it when men weren't around too. The worst kind of coward and bully. Wow, thanks to everyone who took the time to leave us comments on that one. We love reading your feedback. Please sign up at forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's tale. Now, though, the rents are all about collecting paper. Never fear, we've developed a way to fool them. So if you dig what we're doing, head on over to podcastle.org and make a donation, rent-free. Every single cent is greatly appreciated. Thanks. And also, a special thanks to one recent donor in particular, Ethan Solomita. Thanks very much for your donation and keeping our podcast afloat. As our way of saying thank you, we'd like to offer you an honorary position here at Podcastle. Pirate Captain of our Dragon Armada, or Professor Solomita, our latest defense against the Dark Arts teacher. The last professor didn't quite make it to the end of term. But hey, your choice. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for letting Podcastle share another story with you. Podcastle's made up of associate editor Ann Leckie, co-host MK Hobson, sound producer Peter Wood, and your editors Anna Schwend and myself, Dave Thompson. If we left you feeling bummed out this time, don't be too down. Next week's gonna be a blast when we saddle up with Saladin Ahmed for Mr. Hodge's Sunset Ride. For now, whether they take you to hell or they take you to freedom, We hope you're able to go out into the sun. See you next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Albert Einstein said, Reality is merely an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. 